Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast. I'm Dr. Natasha Williams. And I'm Stacey M. Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining us today. So our episode today, I think, is going to be a great episode. Are they all great? I know they are. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We get excited. I know. We get excited for each episode because I think that we have amazing people in our community and it's, I'm so grateful that we're able to share these stories finally, you know, let's, you know, put a shine a light on our community. So, so today we have Natasha Holiday. So Natasha Holiday is a master's and she is a child and youth care practitioner as well as a speaker. She has been working in mental health for over 20 years with a specific focus on youth. She has worked in a variety of settings, including hospitals, schools, and community agencies. Natasha believes that we all possess resilience. She is dedicated to uncovering the resilience already there, foster and build resilience where needed, and demonstrating how to grow through adversity. Natasha has facilitated trainings on mental health forensics and conducted community presentations on various mental health topics. She has been teaching in the Child and Youth Care Program for over 10 years. Natasha has shared her experience, her expertise at conferences, on radio podcasts, in workshops, seminars, mental health forums, and community events. So we've got an amazing, amazing woman coming up. And the work that she's doing is is so needed, especially within our youth. Yes. You know, because I always say that they are the future of tomorrow. And working with them, like sometimes I find the youth is not not, not so much as open, but more open sometimes than adults. And I I don't know... when I go to schools and I, and I talk about, I share my story, um, my journey with, with depression and anxiety, I'm always like stormed afterwards. The kids wanting to know more. And, and you have to be at such a vulnerable stage to open up to them. And when you can open up to them, man, then they can be like, okay, okay, so she can, she can understand me too because I feel like they're looking for someone yeah. to talk to, but the teachers are not presenting. The teachers are not, not walking around saying, hey, I have this and I have that, you know, or I've struggled with this in the past. But having somebody come there as a speaker, speaking to them, and they're like, oh, especially like she looks like me or she looks normal than what I'm going through. So it's more easy for them to open up with. And, and um. Based on Natasha's story, I I saw the perfect quote. Yes. (laughs) The perfect quote. And it goes like this. If you truly want to help someone with their problem, you must first validate their pain. Oh, yes. That is her. (laughs) That is her work. That is is her work. It it wraps it up very nicely. So, yes. So let's let's uh, listen to natasha and and hear what she has to share i think it's going to be a great one for you guys welcome to the blind stigma podcast with your hosts stacy ann buchanan and dr natasha williams this podcast aims to provide a safe space that explores mental health within the black community breaks down the stigmas attached while taking back our narratives natasha how are you i'm great thanks how are you I am doing great. So, you know what? Let us just jump, dive right in. And we've got our first question for you. So we would love for you to tell the audience a bit about 
who you are and what you do. Okay, so I am a child and youth care practitioner. I've been working in um, mental health for just over 20 years. My main focus has been children and youth, but I have worked with adults. Actually, my oldest patient to date was 98, and she was so much fun. It's a wonder I didn't work with seniors solely because there's so much fun to work with. Um, So I've mostly worked in the hospital setting. I've worked in inpatient units. And I've done outpatient stuff. Um, uh, But, you know, I've just spent a lot of time working with some wonderful people who, like all of us, face challenges. And I feel very blessed to be a part of helping people manage those challenges because life does not come with a handbook. Well, it does. (laughs) You know, not everybody's reading it because not everybody (laughs) reads the Bible. But, um, uh, you know, we a lot of times we're just trying to figure out our way in this world and how to manage the things that come our way. And I don't think anybody can do it on their own. I don't think anybody's meant to do this on their own. So I see myself and the role that I play in people's lives as just part of that community response to life's challenges. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I do, I absolutely agree with you in terms of not necessarily navigating this life alone. I think a lot of times we believe that we need to, and we put a lot of things on our shoulders. Um, But I think it's important to say that, you know what, um, at times we may need a guide. It may be somebody professional, it may be personal, friendship, whatever the case may be. Yes, yes. And and I'm I'm agreeing with you with what you're saying, because I, I find that working well not working as a therapist but seeing a therapist is you have it's like you have this direction that you need to go you have all these different lanes and a therapist can help guide you like Natasha said it's like it's working as a guide and that's and your work is so appreciated thank you um specifically I know you know that was a you know you know, very general in terms of, um, you know, the, the population you work with or whatever. Are there specific um, disorders that you are seeing or um, that you specialize in that you've noticed that uh, with your work over the years? So, like I said, I've worked a lot in hospitals. So I've worked with probably the gamut of presentations. What's most common is depression and anxiety. Um, I've done a lot of work with um, young people with psychosis. Um, I currently work in a program that is for, um, we more have clients who have depression and anxiety and just trying to make sure they don't fall through the cracks as they try to bridge into the adult mental health system. Um, but just understanding, you know, because I'm not a doctor, I can't make diagnoses. So one thing that I've learned to appreciate is despite diagnoses, what's presented and what does that mean about how it might Um, impact somebody's life in a way that's not pleasant, that's unhelpful, and dealing more with that. So I kind of have given the um, example to clients that whether you have the flu or you have a cold, there are things that we can put into place to treat the symptoms. And so I don't always focus on diagnoses as much as how is it impacting somebody and what are the ways to deal with that. I don't think, I'm not saying we shouldn't look at diagnoses where that's appropriate, um, but at the end of the day, if somebody's like, I'm dealing with this pain, um, I don't know if they're as concerned with the label as they're concerned with the pain that they deal with. And I want to be a part of helping them manage that pain. 
thank you for yes yes and i i agree with you wholeheartedly and i think it'll foray into the next question in a minute but i think a lot of times we look at diagnoses as the be all and end all um you know for the professions that are have the ability to diagnose and for our listeners who may or may not know there are uh, a few professionals that have the uh, legal right to to um, communicate uh, a diagnosis, and we usually use what we call the DSM or the Diagnostic um, uh, Statistical Manual. And uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, family doctors, MDs, um, nurse practitioners as well. Tasha, I'm not even 100% certain. Um, but um, those are the main um, professions that have the ability to communicate a diagnosis. But here's the interesting thing. Just because you can communicate a diagnosis, it doesn't mean that A, um, that it encompasses everything that that person is experiencing, and B, you know, I, I mean, it, we can get a bit political with this, and I don't know if this is going to necessarily be the platform for this, but uh, there are there are some issues per se with diagnoses, especially if it's done incorrectly, if the assessment was done incorrectly, if the assessment was not culturally relevant or appropriate. Um, they could be looking at cultural behaviors and pathologizing them, and hence incorrect diagnoses, and then what happens is incorrect treatment. So we have to look at some of those things when we're looking at a diagnosis. And I'm not saying the diagnosis is always wrong, but I think it's very weighted, and we have to be cautious as, Absolutely. as as medical and mental health professionals when we're seeing the diagnosis. So Yeah, I, I think that's very important to pay attention to all those factors and understand that we are dealing with people on a whole and we can't um, pigeonhole people and say that all this is this, all that is that. And that's why I think it's really important to get to know the person you're working with and be able to address what they're dealing with where it meets them where they're at and not just a blanket system of this is what you do when that may be helpful as a general guide, but you have to be flexible. Absolutely. Cause you know what? Two, two people can have a diagnosis of depression, for example, but remember that the, and you know, for our listeners, you know, there's certain, um, diagnostic criteria that encompasses depression. So two people can be diagnosed with depression, but not have all the same symptoms. So we uh -huh. have to really make sure that we're looking at the individual and not just the diagnoses, because what some clinicians will do is they'll look at the file of the, the, of the individual, see that the person has depression. And then all of a sudden, Oh, I have a template in terms of how to you know, deal with depression. And then, you know, so you end up working from a templated model or versus the individual and what they are going through and what is it that they need individually. So it's the, the treatment is not individualized. So this is why, um, you know, what Natasha was saying, and, and I completely agree with you, Natasha, is, is that, you know, we have to look at the individual. The diagnosis is important and it may give you a general guide, but you have to look at the individual and, and speak to them because they're the ones that are experts in their experience. See, I'm learning so much from this, from this interview and this dialogue with you and Natasha right now because I, your, your work 
is so important. And does that, does that make your work a little bit harder if you have the file and you see what the client has? And this is for you too, Natasha, you, you have the, you have the file, you see what the client has, but you have to personally talk with them, see the the symptoms and, and see what they're going through. And does it, is it like you're contradicting their file? Like, I'm just trying to understand from this point of view, like, is it a contradiction and you're making your own personal assessment or is, is this coming from, I don't want to say a guided intuition, but you know, like your work is so important. I find like it's so deeply rooted and so important. So how do you maneuver that as, as, as a psychologist, psychologist, and, or, and or a, um, a child and youth practitioner child as well. So yeah, um, I could start. And then, Natasha, if you want to also, I guess, you know, provide your point of view as well. Um, you know, I'll receive a file. Um, I know another practitioner maybe completed the assessment. Um, and the thing is, I mean, I go in, I go in with, okay, this is what this practitioner has seen. I'm going to review it. I keep it filed in my head. And from there... I have the individual in front of me, so I'm gonna to get to know the individual. I wanna see if I see what this other clinician has seen, or are there pieces that are missing? Um, are there, because sometimes I'll have a client in front of me, and they will tell me, I didn't tell that clinician everything because either I didn't feel uh, comfortable with them or whatever, and I've had that happen, where the diagnosis may still be the same because they gave them they gave that other clinician just enough but yes. if they feel now comfortable enough working with me I could then individualize the treatment so yes maybe the person you know does meet criteria you know for major depression but what we can do now is personalize this person okay. this person's treatment of their major depression instead okay. of the overarching label Overall. of, of, of major, major depression of major okay. depression totally so natasha what about what about you and your approach well so one of the things that i've experienced i work in hospitals and so i've all i've seen um people respond to professions alone so if i do a crisis assessment in the emergency department the triage nurse, who doesn't spend a lot of time with them because they just need to figure out what's your purpose in eMERGE and how do I direct you to the right place. So the triage nurse might get some information. I might get some information. The physician might get some information, as in the eMERGE doctor. And a psychiatrist, if they become involved, may get some information. And I've learned to not see it as, as much a contradiction as it's the understanding of who the person is that you're interacting with it could be something like comfort level. Traditionally, we spend about an hour in a crisis assessment. I've spent two to three hours sometimes because if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. And I'm, it's not about what I need. It's about what they need. So I've, I've kind of learned to, albeit I've seen places where contradictions more the word that I would use, I've recognized because I do this in my own personal life. Like if you think back to childhood, I had moments where I used language that my parents were not approving of. I never used it in front of them. I never used that language at school. I was still fundamentally the same person, but I understood sometimes that there was time and place for things. And so sometimes what I've encountered in my patients is not necessarily a time and place, but a um, either a different comfort level or maybe because if I become involved after they've had to tell their story twice, they're fed up and they don't want to do it again. And so I might not get as much information. So there's lots of factors that go into why somebody shares with you what they do. It can be comfort level. I, my profession is child and youth care, and we come from a very relational 
standpoint. So when you build a relationship with people, think about your own friends and your family. You learn things as the relationship progresses. So sometimes it's just about, I just met you. I can't, I'm, I don't feel comfortable to share that, right? Like I, I have a client I see on an individual basis in my practice at work who shared something with me about in our fourth or fifth session. And I asked her because I could tell from her tone and her body language that she was hesitant to share it with me even at that point. And I said, why, um, if you don't mind my asking, why did you not share this with me before? And she says, well, other people have judged me and I didn't know if you were going to judge me too. And so sometimes people are carrying previous experiences into how they respond to a new clinician. And so there's so many things to take into consideration about how and why somebody presents the way they do in the moment that they do. So I, I, this sort of forays into our, our next question. Um, and I know you work in the hospital setting, but I'm assuming that uh, the patients or clients that you see come from, a, you know, a diverse, from diverse populations. But what I wanted to know was, how do you see your work in particularly with the black community? So the clients that you're seeing that are coming from the African-Canadian population. So what's interesting about that, Dr. Natasha, is I often give an example that is not about black people to explain what happens with black people. Oh, okay. That's interesting. (laughs) So years ago, I was working in a different program at the same hospital, and we had my mother's from Jamaica, and we had a client whose grandparents were Chinese Jamaican. And so once they learned I was of Jamaican heritage, albeit they were not black, they, kept, they said, you get it. And so the grandparents who were the ones who were transporting only wanted to talk to me. They didn't want to talk to my colleagues of other races because they saw something in me that said she understands who we are. And I use that example to help people understand why sometimes when you work within your same culture, there's a comfort that be, can be presented that doesn't exist when it's different cultures. Right? And so... And I've had, I've had clients who are of the same race as me who said, like, what a relief that I don't have to explain A, B, and C, because you already know, right? So sometimes there is, it's almost like a potential wall that could be up comes down immediately because of um, that comfort. But I've also taken into consideration how could that work against things? So I had a client who was of one cultural descent, and we had psychiatrists in our clinic who were of the same cultural descent. And given some of her story and the 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 um, the, the cultural like the things that were taboo in her culture, I thought she's not going to want to go see somebody who looks like Auntie and then feel maybe chastised by it. So I think there's a lot of things we have to take into consideration. When I work with the Black community, I don't take it for granted that they're going to be more comfortable, right? What I do sometimes do is, then I can use an example of something in the practice that they understand because of their culture. But I've also learned um, trying to really find out where any client is at. So one example that I started doing, and I laughed when I started doing it, I'm like, why wasn't I doing this before? So one of the things I use in terms of helping clients understand where they are in terms of their emotions is something called the window of tolerance. So there's textbook words for what's the top part, the middle part, and the bottom part. But now I've asked each client I present it to to say, after I explain it to them, I said, what word would you give it for you? And when we use their language, separate of what their culture is, 
I've had every client I've done this with give me a different set of words, but because it's now in their language, they, it, they respond totally different. And sometimes working within my own community, language can be part of what makes that therapeutic relationship work better. Um, so it's, it, it's definitely taking those things into consideration. I have run into places where I've had parents think that I'm going to side with them because I get that they think their children shouldn't be doing that. And so it, sometimes it works for you and sometimes it, it can make things a bit more challenging. And I think with each thing that presents, you've got to weigh that and look at how are we going to get to the point where we need to be with this person in the progress in their healing journey. Interesting because I'm also thinking about, especially um, when members from our community come into the hospital setting, um, because it's it's already you know difficult to you know discuss, talk about, deal with mental illness, especially with the stigma and the taboo in our community, and then you come to the point where you know you then now you know, connected with the hospital system. And that, you know, that sort of makes it even more difficult, um, you know, to even get to that place. So, you know, to, you know, to then have you there, you know, them seeing you, you know, I, I do agree with you that it can bring sort of a, a wall down and help with the comfort, uh, the comfort level, at least uh, to, to initiate and open up. Um, but and I, it gives us an opportunity to explain things. And I've, yes. just, I've seen this separate from my own culture. I've seen this with, you know, a nurse who's the same culture as another patient. That's not North American culture. Mm-hmm. We're explaining that something that presents is not a psychotic feature. It's based on a superstition in that culture. Right. Thank, and that, right? So and the, yes, and that goes back I've to what we were talking about before. Right. I've had people challenge me and say, well, you should be working in black agencies. And I have. I worked for Tropicana. Ah. Um, right. So I have worked in, in programs that were specifically for the black community, but I think one of the blessings in working in the quote unquote system is then I have an opportunity to bring light to something that people in the system may not be aware of. Thank you. By being in it. Right. And also having patients come in and go, okay, it's really nice to see somebody who looks like me. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. And even so, one of my clients, when she looked at the wall in my office, she goes, you have a master's degree? And I said, yes. And she was just like, I'm so glad to meet somebody who's black who has a master's degree. And I'm like, wow. I know lots of them. But for her, she had really? never done that. So even before we had our therapeutic bond, I already apparently provided something that was helpful to her. Just a reminder that we're capable of certain things. Oh, my gosh. But, and you know what, that just blew me away because, you know, imagine that in her experience, um, it's mind blowing that somebody, you know, somebody in our community has a master's degree. So it, I mean, it even speaks to the world that she possibly lives in and the people that are around her. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, Wow. Unbelievable. And then the thing is, it also speaks to your world as well, Natasha, because on the other hand, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, well, I know plenty of people that have, you know, that have master's degree and doctor degree, but it speaks to the world that you live in. Yeah. Right? And see how and we see things that so different. We are all a part of the big world, but we still have our subcultures create very different experiences. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's it, it. As soon as you said that, I was like, geez, it really just brings home 
um, you know, how, you know, even though we're in this big world, we see the world through our own tainted lenses and tainted, not saying it negatively, but just our experiences taint the way that we see this world. Right. It creates a vantage point. Right. And you don't necessarily know there's more to see until you see it. Thank you. And sometimes you have to take licks and tumps and all of them kind of things to actually see the world a little differently as well. <laughs> licks and tumps, love it. I know, that, that, those are my doctoral terms for the day. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you for the um, also clinic, um, clinical language. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so the, um, so the next question that I have for you um, and I think you maybe have spoken on, on it a little bit, but I, maybe if you could expand on it as an African Canadian woman, you know, how does your personal experience impact the work that you do, um, with the community? And the reason I ask this is because a lot of times we don't look at, um, you know, yes, we are working with our community, but we're also in the community as well. We are the community. So mm-hmm. how does, um, you know, how does our personal affect our professional? So I think one of the ways that my personal has affected my professional is growing up in a spiritual household and recognizing that as somebody of Caribbean descent, because I was born in Canada, I am a Canadian by birth. I, I very much identify with my Caribbean heritage, but I was born here. But I've always seen, and in most people's lives that I know who are Caribbean, that there's not full separation of that stuff. Culture is spirituality is part of our culture. And I'm not saying that it's not in other cultures, um, but just with that knowledge, then knowing how to approach that when I'm dealing with clients. And so I, I often ask clients, do you have a spiritual practice? I'm not going to um, enforce one at any one with them. I'm just going to explore that with them to say, is that something that we can include in this practice? Um, I have a client who is aware of Indigenous heritage, um, but is not has not been exposed to it. So prior to us, you know, having life change with the, the coronavirus, I had it in my plan to ask her, and I'd made some calls to, you know, call, um, Indigenous centres in Toronto to, um, to explore with this client, is this something that you'd like to know about? Because I can't bring anything about that understanding to her. I have happily been part of the committee to organize the um, Indigenous Day at a previous job. I love to have people gain knowledge of things, but it's not my realm of knowledge. Um, But I certainly, that's my own personal experiences. You know, my own spirituality affects my mental health. And so how can I take that understanding into um, working with, with my clients? Um, and really truthfully, like, I don't know one person who hasn't really faced something that's been traumatizing. And so when I, I'm going through a healing journey, as much as I'm helping other people go through a healing journey and what have I learned that can be helpful? I don't need to disclose anything, but you know, what have I learned in my own experiences that can, um, help me in my practice with my clients and recognizing that I'm not above any of this because I've had some, you know, dark moments, I've had some trouble, some things happen. And I know what it's like to try to work through that stuff. And I think it gives me an an ability to empathize with having moments where we're stuck or having moments where we're frustrated, having moments where, you know, the most you can do that day is like brush your teeth and put on your clothes, (laughs) any of number of those things, 
there's some some level of understanding. And so my my, my clients often laugh because they said almost every time I we we do some individual work and we do some um, clinical navigation to support people getting to the right services, but we also run a group. Um, and so when we were running the group in the program that I work in now, they would laugh because they'd like, you know what I always say, and now they're going to quote it before I say it, and they're like, give yourself permission to be human. That's I say it, it all, all the time. time. <laughs> yep, yep. But what's great is now I've had clients tell me, you know, I'll be in an individual session, and so we're reviewing how they were since last session, and I'll never forget this one client saying, you know, I was, I was starting to spin, and I was starting to, like, get really anxious about this thing, and I was beating myself up, and then I thought, no. I'm going to give myself permission to be human. I'm like, that's why you repeat it because it sticks. Right. It's <laughs> <is> so true. <laughs> and the stress that came off in that moment for that client, I said, what a beautiful thing. Cause that's exactly what I want. I'm not saying give yourself permission to be mean to people, give yourself permission to not try, but give yourself permission to recognize that human beings struggle. And none of us are above that. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, what I appreciate with, um, with what you said is, is that, you know, as we go through our own struggles, you're hoping that you can share some of that wisdom and knowledge with your clients. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you're right, you know, do we have to share all of our personal? No, because obviously it's, it's not our session. Um, but you know, you get, you get your own therapist if you need that. It's not our session. Not not my session today. But, um, (laughs) but what I usually tell my clients is, is that anything that I'm guiding, you know, you through, I have done my, I've done that work myself. So I'm not just, I've just not opened up a textbook and said, you know, here, do this because the textbook says it. Um, and I would never tell a client to do something that I haven't journeyed myself or haven't gone through mm-hmm. myself or something like that. So what I'll do is I won't share my experience per se, but what I will do is I will let them know that, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not above this because I've got a doctor in front of my name. Um, yeah. I've gone through this. So my hope is, is that we can guide you through this process as well. So um, I find that, that that's important, but it, that's how you end up bringing, I mean, in, you know, that's how your personal, you know, and being part of the community impacts, you know, the experiences that you have with your clients. So, yeah. Natasha, uh, thank you so much for sharing all of this. I was going to ask you, um, one of our second to last question is how, how, how can we change the stigma in the community? You have to talk. Hmm. Silence is what creates stigma. Silence is deadly. One of the things that I've learned is that if we can speak from a place of honesty, we, we destroy stigma. Because I have seen Oy. people talk about things that I think I would be embarrassed to share, but the way they present it, I'm not judging. There's no stigma when I'm listening. And I'm like, because they're a human being and they go through things. And so what I've learned is there's such power in honesty, in vulnerability, in, in recognizing. And part of it, I think sometimes in, in one of the ways I try to reduce stigma is um, turning things around for people to see it in a different light. And I'll use an example that's not about mental health, but this has been very effective. I was about to say, so explain. So when I've had Sounds people good. say to me who are not black, who have said to me, 
oh, I have black friends. Oh, jeez. My response to them is, I have handicapped friends. Natasha! And they immediately hear the tone in which what they said comes from. Yes. Whether I've never heard that response. Or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So part of what I've learned to do is, is to try to open people's understandings is the very nature of privilege is ignorance and not recognizing Jeez. what you don't know is what creates the same thing we're taught we're trying to reduce. Yeah. So stigma comes from a place of I don't know about it, I don't need to know about it, it doesn't affect me, it's not about me. But guess what? Everybody's affected by mental illness. Mm-hmm. And when we can remove stigma like, you know, mentally ill people are violent or mentally ill people aren't intelligent or whatever may come with it, right? we can really tear down walls. And I think what, what I've learned in, in my own practice and, and in the work that I've done is a lot of the work is reducing the stigma within the person themselves. Um, because if we feel shame, we're going to present it with shame, which is going to cause people to think it's shameful. Oh, my goodness. But oh, they man. feel that because of how they've had people respond. Like the example I gave of my client who said, I didn't know if you were going to judge me because other people have. And I, you know, and I just said, no, there's no judgment here. Um, and, and I hope she believed me and she's been able to talk about the thing that she was worried about me judging her with. But I've learned from watching people and even doing it in my own life is the difference in when I held shame about something and when I let go of it, how differently I can speak about it. Is part of how I put it out there is how people receive it. But I also think it's very important that we have dialogue, period, because stigma exists a lot where there's a lot of whispering in the background instead of open, constructive dialogue that is educational and not full of stereotypes. That's true. And assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. I mean, that was something. Yeah. Natasha, I wrote down so many things that you said. (laughs) Give yourself permission to be human. Silence is what creates stigma, the very nature of privilege. Privilege, I believe you said, is ignorance. I was trying to. I was like, is that the, what she said? <laughs> but I'm, I take notes. This, yeah. this, this was well received. Thank you. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, this is, this is what I like to call the fun question. What is, okay. So I'll, I'll tell you how it started. One day I was at work and I went to the water cooler and I saw a sign that said, take what you need for your mental health. And it had a bunch of words and they were cut up in little strips. And all you had to do is to rip the word that you want. And I love that so much that I decided to incorporate it into this podcast and to ask our guest is if you could just tell us one word that could sum up your journey, what would that one word be? And whether it be your professional, personal, or both, what is that one word? I think for me, it was vulnerability. I've had to not only learn to be vulnerable in my own life, um, but to be vulnerable with my clients. Because what I've learned in my vulnerability with my clients is when they see me being real, they, they know that I'm present with them. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. Since, since the, the restrictions with the coronavirus, I do still go into work, but they want less of us in the clinic. So we're doing a combination of working from home and working in the clinic. And I've caught myself when I'm working from home being a little bit more casual. So I think I might have had a, used an expression that I don't typically use you know, with my quote unquote professional self. And I apologize to my client. She goes, no, I love that because 
I know you're being real and I know I can talk to you when you're being real. And so the very thing that I was quoting, I was trying to do to be professional, I didn't recognize might've been alienating my patients to some degree. And so maybe showing them that, you know what, Natasha can uses a bit of slang. I'm not going to talk to them like they're my friends, but just maybe taking off some of the veneer that I thought was part of my professional persona is actually working better towards meeting the clients where they're at and us having an honest interchange that is more helpful for them. Natasha. Yes. I was going to, I was going to say the same thing, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for being part of our podcast today. I know, I know, I know that our audience is going to be so grateful with what you have shared and the work that you are doing um, in our community. So I thank you for that. You know, keep on doing what you're doing because, you know, we, we, yeah. need, we need you. And, and hearing you. your story, Natasha, um, as somebody who has gone through therapy and is still going through therapy, I think if any audience member is listening to this, they will have a fresh approach to wanting to see a therapist, you know, because you, they can hear that, you know, like therapists are human too. And they, and they will have, they will also have questions that they'll want to ask. They'll be more open to seeing a therapist because you, you make it sounds easy when you hear a therapist, honestly, you think, I don't want to go there. I really don't want to go there. They're saying that I'm crazy. This is not the world for me, but you and Natasha, Dr. Natasha's work with both Dr. Natasha's, what you guys are doing is so powerful. And every time we're here and I'm doing a podcast with you, Natasha, I learned so much in hearing you, Natasha, talk about your journey and your experiences as a guest that is, that is listening, that is even thinking of seeking a therapist. You guys open open the door in such a beautiful way to make us want to end the stigma and go out there and end the shame also and to talk. So thank you so much for this. Oh, you're most welcome. I, if I can offer one thing, I, I, I say this a lot when I'm doing maybe an intake assessment or, or, you know, I've done crisis assessments in the ED and even just in conversation, you know, there's so many people who can benefit from therapy but you have to have safety in therapy. And sometimes personality is part of that. So I, to kind of put some levity in it, I tell um, clients, I said, finding a therapist is like finding that right uh, fit pair of jeans. (laughs) Don't beat yourself up. If the first pair you try on is not the right fit. It doesn't mean you can wear jeans. It it just might mean those aren't the one that fit because Listen, I've I've had to go to 10 stores to find one pair of jeans up there. (laughs) And I use that example because most people can relate to going, okay, wide bottom doesn't suit me or reverse cut doesn't suit me or whatever. And we keep, I still want to know who are they making these clothes for? Cause I don't know anybody <laughs> that jeans fit that well, but using that example helps people, um, gives them permission to say, I didn't drive with that one person, right. but it doesn't mean that therapy doesn't work. It just might mean that interchange may not work. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I echo that as well, because a lot of times, you know, you think you think you have to, uh, you know, the minute you f- decide to reach out to, to engage in psychotherapy, you have to have the fit with the first person that you meet. And if that doesn't work or it's, or it's uncomfortable, you notice that sometimes people even stay longer than they even should because they feel that this has to work. This, this square peg has to fit in this circle hole somehow. 
It mustered a lot of strength to wanted to go see a therapist, and this one doesn't fit. Then they're gonna be like, "See, I knew I should not have gone. Yeah, like, this is why I shouldn't, you know." So but they, as a clinician, so, I've learned to ask what's working and what's not because I shouldn't assume that I'm the right fit for everybody that's who right. comes across my table either, right? right? So I try to actually ask the client questions so that I have an idea of how well, how effective it is. Right. Yeah. I, I, and myself in and of the same, you know, you, you know, you can't just make the assumption that, you know, the minute that someone comes to me that the, that is going to stick, you know, that, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And if I'm not the right fit, then you know what, that's okay. Um, you know, you know, please feel free to, to, to go on that journey to until you find the space where you feel comfortable enough to actually sit in that psychotherapeutic exchange, because a lot of people, people, I don't think people don't understand or don't necessarily appreciate how, you know, in terms of your word, how vulnerable you have to be in the psychotherapeutic exchange for it to actually work. Yeah. And, and it's not, if it doesn't work right now, doesn't mean it never will work. That's right. Sometimes timing is part of it. That's right. That's right. Natasha? But I applaud anybody who takes that step. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Natasha, thank you so much for being part thank you, lady. of this, uh, of our podcast, The Blind Stigma. We appreciate you, as I said before. Please, you know, keep on doing what you're doing. Um, you are well needed. You are loved. And I know, and I know, and I continue to know that, you know, God is going to be carrying you to places that you don't even know. So, <laughs> You've reached you so the end of another episode of the Blind Stigma podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. Thank you for tuning in. If you're a first time listener and you like the show, then please subscribe, rate and review us on all the major podcast platforms. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at The Blind Stigma and join the conversation. Find out more about each guest and help us to change the stigma while taking back our narratives. This podcast is produced by What's Up Toronto and Stacey Ann Buchanan Productions.